This morning we began a brand new series of messages, I Still Believe in Miracles. And the question is this, do you believe that God can still perform miracles in our lives today? Is it possible? Is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? Why were miracles performed? And as we look over these seven messages that were the indicators that pointed everyone to Jesus, that he was deity, that he was God, do those same things that were performed then, and the same reason they were performed to point people to the God of the miracle, do those same kind of things happen today, or are they necessary today? Do we still need things in our lives to point to Jesus Christ? And so over these seven messages, we will be answering the questions and looking at the seven indicators, signs, signposts, as scripture says, that said, look to the person who did this. It's an arrow pointing to Jesus. And that arrow says that he is God. He is finally on the scene. This is the Jesus they've been prophesying about for hundreds of years. And John the Baptist says that one will come that's greater than me, and it's Jesus. He's here, and this is what he's capable of doing. Let's define the terms, because I think we need to define the terms before we understand what a miracle is. Because I think, personally, that we have diminished the value of the name miracle. We use it in sentences when it really isn't or shouldn't be used. We say things such as this. It's a miracle that I made it to Grace Community Church on time today with all that road construction. That's not a miracle. Or we'll say, it's a miracle that I passed that test. Praise God, it's a miracle. That's not a miracle. Let's define what a miracle is. A miracle is an interference with nature by a supernatural power. It's where a supernatural power interferes with nature. A miracle is something outside our box, invading our little box, something outside our world, coming into our world and making waves and ripples. Another way to say it is this. Miracles are events in the external world wrought by the power or performed by the power of God. A miracle is God stepping into the universe, setting aside the normal laws of nature to do a supernatural act. Let me try to describe it or explain it this way. For sake of illustration, this is your world. This is your philosophical understanding. This is your doctrine. This is your theology. This is what you believe. This is where you believe. This is everything inside your box. This is your box of life. This is how you think, reason, act, and work. And so every one of us have a box. This is what we know to be true. This is what we believe to be true. And this is what we're capable of doing. And so a miracle is saying we are going to let something outside of our box, supernatural, invade our box and come into our world. And this supernatural power, which is God, that's outside of the box, interferes, comes in and makes ripples and waves in our world and impacts our world in such a way that we couldn't do it on our own. And the only way it's possible is if God intervenes on our lives and in our lives. My hope is this. 
over these seven messages. That somehow our boxes grow. That our faith is expanded. And always we will go back to the word of God. Because the Bible is the grid through which we understand. We test and prove the spirits. We, we evaluate and we form our theology and our doctrine. So a miracle is saying that something outside of our box comes inside our box and does what we couldn't do on our own. And so the question is this, why? Why would we have a system in place and what is the purpose of a miracle? Now before we explain all that, we'll walk through the message. God is so good at what he does. He is so perfect in what he does that we take him for granted all the time. And he is doing things every second of our lives that we take for granted that we don't even acknowledge. There are miracles happening around us in our world today that we have taken for granted, you and I took for granted this morning, such as Colossians 1, 16 and 17. says, God holds the world together with his hands. Everything is under his control. So right now, God is holding your life. God is holding the world. And if God ever chose to let loose of the universe, we'd be in big trouble. Because gravity as we understand it wouldn't be the same. Yet when you woke up this morning, as you sit here today, as you'll go bed tonight, God is performing what only he can perform. There is no one inside this box on their own that can hold the world together. Let me give you another example a miracle being performed right now that we take for granted because God is so good at what he does. Today, you and I will travel 1,599,793 miles through space as the earth spins on his axis. You are a world traveler every single day. You ever think about that? No, I just woke up. Well, I'm, I'm still here in Goshen. Haven't went anywhere. Oh, yes, you did. You travel 1.599 million miles in 24 hours. Now, the only way that is possible is if someone outside of our box is making that happen every single day of our lives. A miracle is happening. Another miracle that's happening and happens There has never been another you, nor will there be another you. And some of your wives are saying it's a good thing that there's only one of him. There's never another you. Your DNA cannot be matched by any other human being in the past, present, or future. God has designed human beings and and created us, and we're fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139 says. So you and I have our own DNA Now, that is a miracle. I mean, after a while, you think, how can I make a different human being again? Like, imagine if that was your responsibility to keep creating the same kind of product, but doing it differently every single time. And God does it. In fact, he's done it seven billion times right now. Can you imagine having that responsibility if that was your job? I want you to take that boat, and I want you to make seven billion different kinds of boats with that. God just does it like that. There's a miracle being performed every single day, every single hour, every single birth. My hope is this in the weeks as we look ahead. As we look at 
our seemingly hopeless situations, our seemingly bad reports from the doctors, and our seemingly impossible circumstances, that we know that God is able to deliver us from them. And that we fall more in love with the God of the miracle than the miracle itself. You see, here's the problem. Some of us, even those who chase after Jesus, were more enamored with his miracles than the God of the miracle. And if you get more enamored with the miracles than the God of the miracles, then you miss out on why God is performing the miracles. It's to point us to Jesus and to say, let's give him greater glory because only he can do that. This past chapter, in our Fight Club journey, we saw what I would say was a modern-day miracle. There was one of our gentlemen that walked through this journey with us by the name of Grand Roberts. He was given a short period of time to live. And so he put his request out in front of 400-plus men. And so for 10 weeks, we prayed. And for 10 weeks, he prayed. And for 10 weeks, we believed that God could do something in his life. And we began to know and understand and see the the report that he got from his doctor. And we put it before God. And I believe, and I believe you will believe after you see this story of Grand Roberts, that God did and can do miracles. Watch this. I didn't realize I was sick. There was many nights I'd just come home and lay down. And I know there was times it was it was really frustrating. It was it was hard for Jamie because uh, I, I loved the work and I normally had no issues keeping up with daily household routine, uh, job, uh, the little things in life. I just had a hard time just keeping a, a regular life. Then one day. I started noticing I was having problems breathing. Basically what ended up happening was I, I, I'm like any other guy. I don't really like going to the doctor unless I, unless I have to. Uh, at least that's the way I was. And I wish I'd learned from that. He looked at my uncle and he set us down and he said, uh, he said, Grand, you have congestive heart failure. If we don't do something now, you're going to be dead in two days. Your body's shutting down. Your organs are shutting down. Your liver, your kidneys. I'm sorry I've tell you this, but uh, you need a new heart. We need to start this heart transplant journey. I didn't. That was the last thing I wanted to hear because I was I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't. I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know how to process it. I. I had a had a conversation with my wife at that point that no man wants to have. Uh, we were trying to figure out, you know, how we were going to handle this. And I even gave, I even told her that day. I said, "Honey, I don't want you and Courtney to see me see me suffer because I love you. I love you with all my heart. I want you to take Courtney, and I just I want you to go and find." Find your happiness. I, I thought that'd be easy, easier than having them see me go. And I nearly died the next day. Uh, my pulse dropped down to uh, uh, 29 beats a minute. My BP shot down to uh, it was uh, 29 over 19. I was blacking out, and for all I knew. This was, this was it. Uh, 
they took rushed me from Kinderville Hospital back to the heart center that day. They got me stabilized. Very fortunate for that. I'm a I'm a fixer. Most men tend to want to fix things, and they, they like that that control. And the hardest thing sometimes is, is giving that control up and letting the Lord fight for you and provide for you. Little I know at that point, God was about to do that. I just needed to let him. Um, I had I had my cross moment that night. When I say I had my cross moment when Christ came to that point, he said, Lord, why have you forsaken me? That was my cross moment. I thought, God, I've taken care of my kids. I've loved them. I've, I've cherished them. I've provided for them. And you have my job. Why this? It was uh, it was almost too much to bear at the moment. You know, I prayed and I said, Lord, all I want to do is take care of my wife and kids. They need a father. They, they, Jamie needs a husband. I want to be there for them. I want to be that guy. I want to take care of my family because they're mine. It's like he told me. He said, you can't be fearful. You have to go on this journey with me. And I thought, why? Why this? Why can't we do it another way? And he... It was as if he said directly to my soul, he said, are you going to watch your kids watch you cower? Or are you going to stand up and are you going to fight for them? I said, Lord, I need something to help me fight. I need someone. I said, I can't fight if I'm worried about my kids and worried about my, my family. And at that point, I, I remember Matt Hey, for many times, I want to say for five years, he kept introducing Fight Club to me. And I thought, oh, I'm so busy. I got, I, got to, I got this to do at work, and my schedule's just not working out. I kept putting it off. So I signed up, and that, that really has given me everything that I wanted and I needed. It's given me that brotherhood. It's been able to give me that discipline I desired from the physical standpoint uh, helped me to really take into consideration you know what I'm putting in my body and how to take care of my body physically but also from a spiritual standpoint it's allowed me to focus uh, you know more more time with my kids and family float and block wood down down a river these simple things in life you wouldn't think initially to even do or something now that it just brings us great joy and it's given us that time, that bonding time. And the kids ask questions like, well, why are we doing this, Dad? And, and, and it gives me the opportunity to tell them why. It's made me a better husband. Fight Club's made me a better dad. It's made me a better friend. It's made me, it's made me a better brother. There hasn't been any part of life it hasn't affected through that experience, I went from being able to walk 60 feet out of breath, just dying, to in that time, within 10 to 12 weeks, we got some good news. 
I, uh, I've kept my appointments. I've kept my cardiac rehab. I've worked hard. I've prayed. I've read our book. Done our challenges. Just hoping and praying that God will give me that miracle. looked at her and said all right doc what it what's what's the results she's looking at the results and she's like something's not right so what do you mean she goes hold on let me let me do some new some reconfiguring something's off so she did some different uh some different uh math when it came to some of the uh, numbers that she thought were off and long story short, she just said, wow, um, you're not going to need the LVAD. We're taking that off the table. And as of right now, you're not going to need a heart transplant. <laughs> I got my miracle. <laughs> God didn't let me down. Even when I thought I was all by myself and alone, God provided. But what's so amazing about this Fight Club experience is it's given me the opportunity to, to focus on every area of my life just to become strong enough mentally and physically and spiritually and in other ways to where I could fight this. I, I could... I, it was like it was breaking me down so I could trust. I could trust God. He's putting people in front of me I'd never met the entire time, saying pray with them. He was giving me these challenges, and all along, while I'm doing these challenges, he's saying, I'm taking care of you. And that's what he did. I walked out. I walked out of there. It just floored. The reality of being able to walk my daughter down the aisle is becoming more clear. The reality of praying with my daughter and her future husband afterwards it's also becoming more clear. I need to fight for my kids, my wife, and my home now so they can fight for theirs then. My name is Grand Roberts, and I'm a fight club man. The story continues with him that night when he came for graduation. Um, one of the things I love about this story, there's so much more there, is that he didn't try to fight it alone. And that's what happens. Hear me out. Some of you in this room right now are battling alone. You're letting pride. There are things that you're walking through right now that you're not telling anyone. And let me tell you, the only reason you do that is because you're believing a lie that you can do it on your own. And it's pride. 
I've often said this. I've asked people, encouraged people, if you're walking through something challenging and difficult, then expand your prayer base. The best thing that he did in this whole journey was he had 400 plus men begin praying for him. He didn't fight it alone. The Bible is implicit. It's clear. When the church prays, things happen. So as you walk through this difficult thing, don't be the guy, don't be the girl, don't be the couple, don't be the person who fights it all alone in secret. That's what the enemy wants you to do. See, he wants to get you all by yourself because he can attack you better by yourself or as a couple than he can when there's a whole group of people standing around you and defending and fighting with you. And what I love about this story is this. At graduation that night, I talked to him, and I walked over, and he won the Spirit of Fight Club Award. And I went over to him after our, our, at the end, and I said, Grand, just praising God for what God's doing in your life and heart, physical heart, too. He came over, and tears streaming down his face. He grabbed a hold of me and squeezed the guts out of me, picked me off the ground. And then he said this, what I'll never forget. He said, I want to tell you something, Pastor Jim. He said, my father hasn't been in a church in 10 years. My dad was burned by the church he said, and I've been praying for my father. And he looked over and he said, there's another prayer that you can pray about. He said, for the first time in 10 years, my dad showed up to a church event. He was there that night. And so we can praise God. And not only does God enable, yeah, praise the Lord. Not only can God work there, but he has so many other things that he's working out too. So I encourage you, as we walk through this message today, I'm going to ask you, some of you fight too privately. And you believe that's the way you should do it. Listen to me. There's nowhere in the Bible where you'll find that to be true. There's nowhere in the Bible. What the Bible shows you is to open up and let the church and others pray for you. Do it in community. Do it in life. Jesus is about to begin his journey of showing the world that he is God. Grab your Bibles, and I'm going to show you. Turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11. Jesus comes on the scene, and he's about to show the world during this time that he is the one they've been looking for. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will put one in your hand. John chapter 2, and let's stand as we read verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Read this with me out loud. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Ready, read. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You may have a seat. You might not like this, but the reality is this. The prerequisite for a miracle is a problem. 
the prerequisite for a miracle is a problem. And everyone wants a miracle, but no one wants to be in a situation that necessitates it. This was a setup for Jesus to begin his ministry and for everyone to see him, a signpost that says, he is the savior of the world. This is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And so Jesus begins his earthly ministry with this signpost that points to him that says, he's the one that did this. Let me give you a little background here because it's important. Look at John chapter 1 in verse 26 through 31. John the Baptist was on the scene. And because he was doing all kinds of incredible things for the Lord, people thought that he might be the Messiah. But he says this, John chapter 1, look at verse 26. He says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said this, look what he says. Look, look, look. The Lamb of God who takes away the what? What's it say? The sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be what? Revealed to Israel. And so we're seeing him being revealed. John says, there's a man that will come that will not, that, that can't untie the sandals. And he says this, I'm not worthy untying. And he says, he's coming on the scene and you will see him. And his name is Jesus. John chapter 2, here he comes, signpost, I'm Jesus. I can do things outside of the box. I am this supernatural God that the prophets of the Old Testament have been talking about and referring to. Word was on the street now in John chapter 2 that Jesus was more than a carpenter's son. And by the way, I believe this word got back to Mary too. Pause with me and consider, if we can, in our finite minds. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2 and verse 19 that Mary, when she found out that she was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by a man, it says she treasured these things in her heart and she pondered them in her mind. What things? Here's what she pondered. Here's what she treasured. How in the world can I be having a baby inside of me if I have not had a relationship with the man? And by the way, Mary is the only human being on planet earth, now listen to me, that really knew. When I say knew, I mean experienced the know. Like she was the gnosko through experience. She knew because she knew she didn't have a relationship. Other human beings believed it was true, but they didn't really know because they weren't carrying the Messiah in the body. And they didn't know that they knew that she was conceived without having a relationship. So she was the only one that really knew. And now word is on the street in John chapter one. And it says this, this man by the name of John the Baptist said, this man is coming that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And word on the street is Jesus is that man. And Mary heard that too. And so imagine as a mom, you're raising this child and you know, 
that it was conceived through the Holy Spirit. And you're wondering, when will be the day? Moms, can you imagine what she lived with day in and day out? Because some believed and really believed, but some weren't sure. But she knew that she had no relationship with the human being and that there was a God child inside of her. And now, word on the street that Jesus was about to begin being a signpost for the whole world to see that he was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus in this passage is roughly 30 years old and has lived his whole life as a perfect man. Pull away, just a little sidebar. I've often wondered this as a man who has some perfection tendencies. If Jesus had perfection tendencies too as a perfect person, did he stack chairs and tables and tools and things and put them in perfect rows? Did he? I mean, he was perfect in every way. Did his friends play head games with him by moving things around because they were human beings? I also believe that before, this is my personal take, I believe that he performed miracles and practiced them on his friends, but they didn't know it. Like, I've often wondered this as a carpenter. When, a, when his dad would cut a piece of wood too short, did Jesus let it grow back a little bit and hand it to him? At what point, at what point, Did Jesus know that he was the perfect God-man? He was God-man at all times. Maybe, just maybe, I believe the greatest miracle was that for 30 years he kept his powers a secret. Now, hold on a second. Imagine. It's hard for us to imagine because we have finite minds. Imagine knowing what you could do, but you didn't do. Imagine, like being bullied in school the whole way through. And this dude keeps bullying. You know, you could just go, if you wanted to. Imagine the restraint that our God had. Why? Because he knew his time had not yet come for him to go to the cross. And that there would be a day that he would be revealed. And it began here at the wedding at Cana of Galilee. Imagine when his mom would send him to the market and like, I want you to go get some fresh vegetables and they're, they're five miles away. Imagine, all he had to do was, if he wanted to, yippoo. but he didn't. The mere fact that Jesus restrained himself from exercising his power. I've often wondered as he played king of the hill in, in Jerusalem in elementary school and they're running to him and one of his friends fell down and he scraped his knee. If Jesus just brushed by and just touched it, and the kid didn't even know it. You see, Jesus knew who he was. Imagine for a second as the thoughts of being the Messiah ran through his head as he aged, and he knew his time was coming where he would give his own life for the sins of the world. I bet there were lonely times for him, as he could never fully share these things with anyone But everything was about to change. And it does here in John chapter 2. At the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Where Jesus will perform a modern day miracle. Now let me just pull away and say this. Sometimes Jesus shows up into your pain and your predicament to bring you comfort. 
Sometimes he shows off to reveal his glory. And he is ultimately the determiner of that. But our responsibility and our obedience is to ask him to. In some ways, the seven miracles that we'll look over at over the next seven messages will move from impossible to a word that you English teachers are just going to just tear me up, impossibler. Like they, get, they go from water to wine to, to, to people being brought back to life. And in some ways, he begins by, by, by not shocking the world, but them saying, huh, water to wine. And over these miracles, you'll see they will go from hard to harder, from impossible to impossibler. And it would be a devastating blow even to the bridegroom's family here if they ran out of wine. I love how his mom responds to him here to the wine running out. She didn't tell him or ask him to do something about it. She just says this. Look what she says in verse 2. She says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, Jesus, they have no more wine. She doesn't tell him what to do. She just makes him aware that they have no wine. Keep in mind, too, Jesus is a guest, and he wasn't responsible for the drinks that day. He, get, he got invited to the wedding party. He was part of their box, of their world. And when Jesus gets invited in, supernatural things can happen. And when we invite him into our predicament, when we invite him into our sickness, and when we invite him into our world, Jesus can do out-of-the-box things that we can't do on our own. And the reason he does them is to elevate his glory, not bring attention to us. She didn't tell him what to do, but acknowledged the problem and got him involved. You see, this is the path for victory for us. Jesus, here's the predicament I'm in. Jesus, I want you aware of this. You see, the truth is this. The miracle is not in the words or a magic phrase or saying abracadabra. You don't need to know what to say, but who to say it to. It's Jesus. You see, even as Grand said in it, human beings, especially men, are fixers. We try to do everything we can. We'll read the internet. We'll, we'll study Wikipedia. We'll, we'll read uh, web information that doctors have, and we'll, we'll, we'll diagnose on our own, and we'll have a plan of this and that, and this and that, and this and that, and this and that. And we try to fix it on our, in private on our own. And yet Jesus is saying, invite me into your world. Before you go to the book, go to the great physician called Jesus Christ. Because he is able to do way more than you'll ever read in a book. And so in this case, they invite Jesus into their predicament. If you seek him first, he won't be your last resort, but your eternal hope. Why? Because listen to me. There is no atom or molecule in your body or universe that is not subject to God's overriding authority. Do you believe that, by the way? When Jesus speaks, 
It has to happen. He is the final authority over everything. To an omnipotent God, there are no degrees. Like, Jesus doesn't have degrees of difficulty. Like, he doesn't walk in and say, Woo, that's a doozy. No, there's no degrees of difficulty for God who created and held the worlds and holds the world together. Think about it this way. The God who spoke every action into existence is the one who can mutate any molecule. That includes blood cells, brain cells, and cancer cells. See, he can speak to those because he created all those. But Jesus asked his mother, woman, in verse 4, why do you involve me? My hour has not come yet. What hour? The hour of him being recognized as the Savior of the world and to the death, burial, and resurrection. His mother told the servants to do whatever he tells you. Look at verse 5. Look how his mom just puts other people into action. His mother said in verse 5 to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I find it interesting. In most miracle cases, it requires a human level of obedience. Sometimes we have to do the natural before God will do the supernatural. There's always a step of obedience in these situations. In this case, the natural is someone needs to bring the water and pour it into pitchers. Someone else has to step on the scene and the natural, so that Jesus can do the supernatural. Look what happens next. Look at verse 6. It says this, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with what? What's the word? Water. So they filled them to the brim. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do, not knowing and not completely understanding how that could turn into wine. There isn't one person said, what up, Jesus? Like, why do I need to do that? They just obediently followed and did what he said we should do. Think about that for a second. God doesn't need much to work with. In fact, he doesn't need anything But when Jesus invades our box, he brings with him answers outside of our box and power. Keep in mind here too, sometimes we get so, we look at this passage and we lose perspective. Listen, the miracle isn't in the wine. Like we don't look at it and say, hey, that was good wine. Jesus didn't put this in scripture. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire John to write this, that we say, hey, hey, there's good wine there. The point is this, that Jesus is able to perform miracles and that gives him greater glory. Turning water into anything else is a miracle, whether it's orange juice, pop, oil, or tomato juice. The wine is not the miracle, Jesus is. And too often we get more enamored with the miracle than we do the God of the miracle. Here's what I love about this. And that's why I say it goes from impossible to impossibler. I love the fact that the first miracle was not about saving a life, but saving face. Why do I tell you that? Here's why. Jesus is concerned about every portion of your life. Even down to like, in all reality, would it really, would it really would have wrecked this marriage if they, if they didn't have any wine? No. 
but it would have looked poorly upon the bridegroom's family that they hadn't thought ahead. And so Jesus does something that, that he didn't have to do. He made the bridegroom and the family look more honorable. He didn't have to. Yet he, it wasn't about saving a life, it was about saving face. Seriously, it reminds us that every problem we face, no matter how big or small, we have an answer in Jesus. This was not a life or death situation. Jesus cares about every detail of our lives, even saving face. So the point is this, why do we keep trying to fix it all ourselves? Why do we go to self-help books when we can go to Jesus first? Is your default system, fix it yourself or ask Jesus first? So how do you do that? Well, when something comes in your life, is your default system when you're planning, building, asking, you're concerned, you don't know what to do next? Do you go through all the checklists first or do you go to prayer first? Because often when you go to prayer, Jesus shows you where to check. And Jesus shows you what to do. But we are fixers as people. He made the master look more honorable. And by the way, imagine the look on the groom's face. Because there's no doubt that we'll get back to him. Hey, we're out of wine. He's like, oh, great. That was my responsibility. Imagine the look on his face when he watched the master of the ceremonies drink this and he went, whoa. Whoa. And what do you think they did in that moment? They just pointed to Jesus. He did it. And that's the point of miracles. It points us back to Jesus. The ultimate purpose of a miracle is not your healing or you, but to raise the level of glory for Jesus Christ. And by the way, here's what I know to be true. And this is why I say, don't be that person who fights your predicament your situation, in private by yourself. That's what the enemy wants you to do. Nearly every miracle has a supporting cast. If you want the starring role, you will most likely miss it. So if you're trying to battle it on your own and say, well, I prayed, I did this. Listen, you need a supporting cast. And the supporting cast are Christ followers, the church. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we have community. You're not meant to walk this life alone. Enlarge your prayer base. I met with a man again this week, and he's walking through a difficult time. And I asked him this question. How many people have you made aware of this? Five. And I said, why? I don't know. Pride. I said, enlarge your prayer base. Because the fervent prayer of righteous people, plural, avails much. Enlarge your prayer base. Quit fighting it alone. Every miracle has a supporting cast. Someone in a group that you go to, lean on, remind you, gets you to the miracle maker. Before we move on with this account, there are two primary hindrances that I would say to miracles. The first one is this, skepticism. Miracles, by definition, are a violation of natural laws. 
And because they don't make logical sense, we have a tendency to explain away what we cannot explain. And we'll say, well, that was just a coincidence. Well, I'm not sure, but I'm sure it won't happen again. But skepticism predisposes us towards disbelief. Yet the Bible was clear that God can do the impossible. And by the way, I never want my finite mind to keep my infinite God from performing a miracle so that he can get greater glory. And some will limit God. Skeptics by nature try to hold things too closely. They rarely celebrate because of fear that it might not, it might not stay good for a long time. And there's this fear He's good now. That situation is good now. So I don't want to make it public and celebrate because of fear that it might get worse again. You know where that fear comes? Fear doesn't come from God. It comes from the pit of hell. Celebrate it. Give God glory. Don't let the enemy rob Jesus Christ of his glory. The second reason a primary hindrance to miracles is dormant disappointment. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Have you ever prayed for a miracle, but it feels like God didn't hear a word you say? Absolutely, all of us have. I can't explain why God doesn't answer some prayers and others he does, but it is a mistake to allow a single disappointment to make you throw in the towel altogether because it can pull back the reins of your faith And you could miss your present day miracle by not asking Jesus to invade and interfere into your box. Some spend too much time agonizing over all the what ifs instead of focusing and believing on he can, he's able. You can't, listen to me, you can't worry and fret and have anxiety and trust Jesus at the same time. You can't do it. You can't, it's impossible. And if you have fret and worry and anxiety, then what you're saying is, I don't believe. He's not able. So you have to take every thought captive and replace it with the truth that he's able. He's able, even if it means you say that 100,000 times a day to battle back. Another pause button. Before we move on, the greatest miracle that has ever been performed and will ever be performed, and there is no close second, and this miracle has 100% return rate from a repentant heart, is salvation. Listen to me. If you have a repentant heart, and you're asking the King of kings and Lord of lords to be your savior, listen to me. You can bank 100% that he will save you. That's a miracle. An old heart becoming a new heart. A dead man getting life. And a, a man walking from, from, from slavery to freedom, from hell to heaven. Listen, that is a modern day miracle. And there is a 100% return rate. A repentant heart crying out to God and say, I believe you're the king of kings. I believe you're Messiah. Will you save me? And he says, yes. That is an incredible miracle. So watch what happens next. They get the water in verse 8. 
It says this. Then he told him, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize it where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, and the guests have had, when they have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. These kind of accounts stretch our faith. They elbow us out of our own assumptions that keep us from believing that God can do a miracle for us too. Fear can keep you from believing. And if God can do this, and certainly he can do what you need in your situation. Here's what I know. When a person's mind is stretched by a new idea, and in this case, a miracle, it never returns to its original dimensions. I pray. This is my prayer. I pray this regularly for Grace Community and for my family and and for myself. I pray that you never limit how God wants to work in your life because of your own unbelief. See, here's what happens. Hear me out. Some of you right now are saying, yeah, but. Or I'll believe it when I see it. Instead, you should be saying, I believe before I see it. Look what happens in verse 11. This is what Jesus is really good at. This often gets lost in this account. Look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, look what it says, through which he revealed his what? And his what? Believed in him. You see, miracles raise the faith number of others. But sometimes it's harder to believe God for a miracle for ourselves. Now think about what took place here. These, lots of people began following Jesus because he was doing these miracles. And they, so he had this large following. His disciples believed in their heads, I'll leave my family, I'll trust in you, and I'll follow you. They believed in their heads, but my understanding is this. When they saw Jesus perform this miracle, it went from their heads to their hearts, and they were truly born again. Look at look what it says. Look what it says. Verse 11. It says in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples did what in him? I believe in this moment that his disciples trusted him fully with faith that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, the way we steward the miracle is by believing God for even bigger and better miracles. And then our faith nudges others to do the same. His disciples believed in him too. What began as saving face for a wedding party's family ultimately pointed everyone to Jesus. That's what miracles are supposed to do. Point him to Jesus so that he gets greater glory. And so when people look to Jesus, they say, wow, I couldn't do that on my own. There must be someone outside the box that can do that. Who is that? It's Jesus. And what started as a miracle to save face ultimately took people who had their box looking at Jesus and saying, you are the son of God. I believe in you. That's, what, that's why we have miracles. The miracles aren't necessarily for us, 
But when we trust in him, open our prayer base, get other people involved, and he does what only he can do, we receive what we've been asking for, but ultimately it raises the glory meter of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And people say, whoa, there is a God, and I need that God. That's what miracles do. They raise the glory number of Jesus. And what began as a problem for a wedding ultimately saved the lives of the disciples. Miracles are meant to point people to Jesus and to give him greater glory. You see, here's what I know. Jesus can turn the worst of days, the worst of predicaments, the worst reports, the worst news into the best days and best news. How? With the nod of his head. Do you believe that? You see, the second you don't, in the New Testament, as they were walking through this journey, one man said this, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You see, you can't doubt and trust at the same time. My prayer is that over the next seven weeks, you believe and you hand off your situation and you invite God into your box so that the supernatural can invade the natural. And when the supernatural invades the natural, supernatural things happen and people ask, who did that? And you say, it points to Jesus. Jesus wants to do that for you. He is the God of the impossible. The Lord I could preach that message, the same message, over and over and over and over and over and again. But God, we need to preach that to ourselves. And so, Lord, my hope is this, that over these next seven messages, that we begin to hand off our situations to you. And that our boxes are enlarged. And we nudge the faith capacity of others Because people can see what you are capable of doing. You can turn the worst into the best because you, God, are the God of the impossible. In Jesus' name, amen.